Hey everyone, back again. Today we're gonna continue on the Foucault train and talk about his essay, The Subject in Power, because he really liked that last episode I did on Foucault and I'm sporting my Foucault shirt once again. Must commemorate the occasion. But before jumping into it, hi, for anyone who's new, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new, you can go check out my almost 300 episodes I already have up. You can like, share, subscribe, that would help me out. You'd see videos I release every single week, sometimes twice a week. If you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. There are links for these things in the description. If you want to help me out, do all those things I just mentioned, or you can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. And uh, yeah. Oh, if you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form if you're into that on any podcast platform. Or if you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find the video on YouTube where you'll see my Foucault shirt. So yeah, without further ado, let's jump into this very important, complicated essay titled The Subject and Power. So this essay is an effort for Foucault to clarify that throughout his works, many of which I've covered on this channel that you can go and check out if, you, if you'd like, many of his texts are less interested in the question of power as they are interested in the question of subjectivity, and that is the process of turning humans into subjects, not subjectivity in like individual opinion, even though that's part of it. But in the way he's talking about it here, he's referring to the process of turning people into subjects through subjectification. Now he identifies throughout his work, and this is him really meditating on the different ways that this can manifest itself. He identifies three different ways in which humans are turned into subjects. Firstly, it happens through the deployment of a kind of science. And the easiest, most clear example would be like a field of biology, for example, that says that humans have basic fundamental natural characteristics that they must abide by in order to properly realize themselves as active, proper subjects or agents in that world. But in this case, when we're talking about science, it can apply to other domains as well. So he offers the domain of political economy that turns all humans through a kind of scientific lens into agents, subjects of a kind of laboring practice where it says that humans are laborers, so therefore they have X, Y, and Z attributes that they must follow. The same would apply as well to other disciplines like linguistics that attribute certain qualities to humans via their uh, linguistic capacities, their capacity for speech and communication. In any case, this is the first mode, the reduction of people or the organization of people through a kind of science. Now, the second mode of subjectification comes through the process of division, where people are split not according to certain attributes they might necessarily have on their own or in accordance with any domain that they're being kind of forced into or a mold they're being forced into, but rather by their being separated by their being distinguished from other clearly marked and identified people. So some examples would be like the division between or the split between healthy people and sick people, between mentally ill people and quote unquote sane people, between criminals and between law-abiding citizens and so on. And the third form of subjectification refers specifically to the way that institutional formations subsume people into their uh, mentality or into their domain 
and then render those people subordinate to those ways of experiencing the world, of understanding the world. Like in the case of sexuality, as he writes in the, in the history of sexuality, which I've covered and you can go listen to, he says that humans are within a certain epistemic, a certain historical moment, humans are made to believe that they are sexual beings with certain sexual proclivities that will refer to various desires and drives. And they must then live their lives according to those proclivities instead of just existing in accordance with their own bodily uh, desire, their own pleasure. Or another example might be how people might enter the domain of politics and become a political subject, or they enter higher education and become a thinking subject, and so on. You know, you can insert any one of your own examples here. Now, these are the primary processes that interest Foucault, not power per se, but power is a part of them. In fact, many of the ways that these institutions that people are going to exert their own force is going to be through this thing called power. And we're going to explain a little bit what that means for him as we move on. But firstly, in order to grasp the situation that we're confronted with, and you know, he, was, he wrote this in, the, in 1980 around, around that period, uh, maybe a little before, he was writing about a point in time in which people were starting to understand power as not being reducible to specific locations. So we could no longer say, hey, that king over there or that royalty is, has power. If we just overthrow them, everything will be good. At this point in time, power is much more distributed. Power is being exerted by many different people in many different locations in many different ways. So it becomes all the more difficult to understand how it works. Now this demanded acknowledging the historical situations that produced this outcome, that produced the situation we find ourselves in now and when Foucault was writing, but also to engage with the fact that we are living in a world in which there are multiple realities. There are multiple ways in which power exerts itself over people. And this really came at a time following World War II when rationalism was called into question. I mean, World War II saw Europe, the supposed uh, pinnacle of the world's uh, rationalism, rationality, come to its knees because of its own irrationality through Stalinism, through fascism, through the implementation of gas chambers, you know, the Holocaust, just absolutely represent reprehensible moments in human history. We saw all that call attention to the intractability or really the fragility of this notion of rationalism. So it wasn't any longer so cut and dry, so neat to be able to explain the world according to specific identifiable forces or sources of power or knowledge. Where there was no one proper way to look at the world, we had to understand that there were going to be multiple ways. And it was when we could begin to do that when we could begin to identify that there are many realities, not just a single uh, homogenous reality dictated by the precepts of religion or government or uh, you know, insert anything you'd want here. When we began to identify that there are multiple realities, we opened the door for the possibility of certain kinds of resistances to those realities and the power that they potentiated and that they operationalized. And these resistances aren't necessarily 
intended to be a form of resistance to an emerging new kind of power. It's not as though different people's movements against these forms of power was spurred from reading Foucault or an acknowledgement that power was assuming a different form. It was rather a response to the new ways that power was being organized, where people were being organized in new and effective ways at controlling them. So in the case of like psychiatry or psychology dealing with mental illness, there was an expansion of different possible categories through which to understand people and possible mental illnesses they might be dealing with, which on the surface is obviously a great thing to be able to treat various people in various ways. But Foucault, among others, interrogated the extent to which that this opening up of a, of a lexicon, of a, a field of, of a new vocabulary to understand different people's ailments worked less to actually help people in these situations and more to prepare them for an institutional apparatus like mental hospitals that, you know, maybe not so much uh, around today, but certainly at the time when he was writing this, uh, mental hospitals would be used to essentially punish and torture people with mental illness to try to fit them back into what would be a proper individual, to make them proper again. So he approached these expanding knowledges, these varying and differing forms of exerting power with uh, suspicion. He, he really interrogated them with suspicion to say that they work not to make the, our situation better, but rather to maintain tacit forms of power relations that organize people and prepare them for their own subordination. So this opened up novel opportunities of resistance and novel opportunities to understand the way that power worked. So Foucault proposes, and this was really one of the kind of his novel approaches, he sought to look and understand uh, an institution like sanity, not by engaging with the medical jargon that would necessarily determine what sanity is, which he would do that, but that was only a part of it. He was more interested in looking at the various domains of insanity, that opposite pole through which the category and institution of insanity could bolster itself up with. So there are no intrinsic qualities about what makes somebody sane. Rather, in order to be sane required or depended more upon having a necessary opposite, in this case insanity, that would be imbued with various characteristics, against which someone considered sane would be compared so that they could be then uh, deemed healthy, deemed rational, deemed uh, a good law-abiding citizen, and they would reap various privileges, various benefits as a result. So Foucault lays out that to resist power assumed six possible forms, or there were six fundamental characteristics to the kinds of resistances that would manifest in response to these new forms of power. The first characteristic is that it existed everywhere. These forms of resistance exist across all countries in all places, because we really saw that there were these emerging logics of rationalism, rationalization, that would be deployed all across the globe with a kind of global, uh, with globalization and with the extension, communication of these various forms of control over people. Secondly, they would respond to the power effects, which is to say that the ways in which that these, this power would, uh, the end result of it, 
being in the production of certain kinds of people in certain kinds of ways and their construction as being uh, insane in a lot of cases, as being deviant, uh, and responding to that effect of power, these power effects. And thirdly, they would be responding almost immediately to this kind of power, which makes sense insofar as this power would be operating on such a specific level that it wasn't so easy and neat to lay out a kind of end goal, like in the case of uh, a workers' revolution that would say, oh, the final end result is going to be the workers seizing the means of production. Good, great, we can see what that end goal is gonna look like. But in the kinds of these power, uh, or the, these power effects, it rather demands more immediate tactical responses to this power by immediate moments of saying no, of saying that we want to organize another way. We don't know if this is going to be better because it's very difficult to lay out any kind of plan, but it's rather responding to a very specific enterprise within society instead of looking at society as a whole and saying like this is the uh, where we should move ourselves, like in the case of Marxism with the workers' revolution. Now the fourth element is that they are contradictory in a good way. So these kinds of resistances are contradictory in the sense that they are calling attention to the ways that these institutions, these power relations, are taking people away from their own individuality. They are stripping people of their own autonomy and saying uh, to someone who might display certain characteristics, they say to them, oh, we know what a sane person is like, you are not like them, so therefore you must be insane. This is a way to strip them of their autonomy. But at the same time, they are bestowing upon people a certain kind of autonomy, bestowing upon them a certain identity within a certain uh, framework. Now this framework is also one that opens up a kind of possibility of community, where people would be institutionalized among other people who have also been diagnosed in such a way. It was almost a simultaneous de-individualization as well as a reorganization or putting people into a new kind of community. Now, in response to this, people would call for more individualization. I mean, it, an, an individualization that would actually make sense to the people, not to these institutions, not to these power relations, and to advocate for another kind of community, one that would develop organically out of uh, various other kinds of connections not dictated by these institutions by these power relations. And the fifth characteristic is that they are going to oppose the ways that knowledge is kind of given a privileged status, how it comes with certain benefits that are foreclosed to the general public, that are esoteric, you know, kept secret. You have to know the language in order to really belong to that domain, to have any kind of real power within that domain, which is just a way to gatekeep and keep, you know, people out of it. And then sixthly, they are responding to the ways in which they are being molded and transformed and bent and shaped by such power relations. Now it's important to note that these power relations or these resistances to power relations speak less to a resistance to certain institutions and more to a resistance to a certain kind of power, to certain techniques of power that various differing institutions will employ and that they do employ. Now this technique of power is subjectification, to turn people into subjects, which is to say that either they are going to be subjected to a, 
to an institutional power, to a kind of authority, or they might be subjected to themselves, where they are believing themselves to be existing of their own free will, their own volition, but they've actually been motivated by certain ideas that have uh, infected their mind, have made them pliable, have made them susceptible to certain tacit, or that is to say like sneaky or non-obvious forms of control that they don't necessarily know how to identify. So for example, like uh, the wellness industry that is often peddling ideas about uh, one's wellness or needing to uh, punish oneself in certain ways, various ways through uh, rigorous diet and exercise in order to attain a certain bodily standard. Now, some people will are very much aware of this and they will think that it is of their own volition that they have these ideas. They're supposed to be a certain weight or be a certain size, be a certain strength. And then from there, they can justify that to themselves and say that it is their own belief that they haven't been motivated by this in any way. This is another kind of subjection or subjectification, I should say, that doesn't necessarily point to any specific uh, ruler or any specific kind of control, but is rather a more subtle, tacit one that sneakily climbs into your brain and motivates you to act in certain ways according to certain ideas and principles that become natural to you, that become normal to you, and that you therefore have very little opportunity to challenge and to undo. Now, in other texts, most specifically Discipline and Punish, Foucault lays out the history of this, moving from what he calls sovereign power, so power being under the rule of like a king, where you could say, oh, that the king is the problem here, where there's just one person really with all the power, moving into disciplinary power, and then finally, and the order is a little bit muddy, but finally, carceral power, biopolitical power. But here in this text, he wants to give us, uh, kind of point the finger at Christianity as motivating this transformation of power to be a new kind of organizational power that we've been laying out so far. And he identifies this as pastoral power, pastoral power. And this was really motivated by Christianity and the church, where there was a de developing rhetoric of individual responsibility on the ter terrestrial plane, terrestrial plane on earth, in order to make oneself um, seem like a virtuous person in the eye of God. So the church's narrative was that if you work hard, if you are an upstanding citizen, you are going to be permitted to enter heaven at the end of your life when you uh, reach, reach judgment day, essentially. So what this did was open up a kind of, or a new social dynamic in which people were responsible for themselves. And there are other parts of this that are relevant, like the confession box for anyone who grew up in like the Catholic church, for example. Uh, and I mean, I, I certainly did, I was an altar boy. Uh, I know all about these things. Where the confession box is really the moment in which people are meant to demonstrate that they are sorry for things that they've done, to renounce themselves, their own pleasure, their own desire, in favor of God's will, whatever that is, which is really just mediated by uh, somebody in the church. So what happened, according to Foucault, is that this pastoral power that had a lot of influence on government, on the state, began to be... to kind of mix with other forms of state power, like the police, like everything else, where they would then begin to recognize that what is right and wrong 
being determined by God, because who's going who's gonna to question God, should be what is written into legislation, what is written to, into law. So that's kind of the obvious way in which there was that influence. The more surreptitious way or sneaky way that it was uh, introduced was that the logic of accountability and of individual responsibility became a generalized precept among the general public at large and among government, where people became responsible not only for their eventual salvation at the end of their life by entering heaven, but also in what it meant to be a good citizen, being seen approvingly in the eyes of your other gods, be it your school teacher, be it uh, the mayor, the sheriff, be it your dietitian, as funnily enough, Kant writes about uh, (laughs) the diet thing is just, yeah, anyways, uh, being seen approvingly in the eyes of all of these different people. Then he moves into the second section of this essay and it's titled, How is Power Exercised? And what he means by this and how it is exercised is he's asking what are its effects? Like what does it do? And he's also asking by what means is it exercised? What does it actually look like in in its actual uh, use? And what does it look like at the end result. So this kind of power, and he's really just talking about the same power he's been talking about the whole time, but when discussing power relations here, he wants to make the distinction between power relations and between communication, and between what he calls uh, objective relations. And communication is just gonna refer to the actual like communication between people in somewhat neutral way, which of course it isn't neutral, and he, he admits that. Whereas the objective relations are going to refer to Uh, actual like identities that people have or spaces that people occupy that bestow upon them certain identities. So he gives the example of like uh, a school hall or let's say a university where different disciplines are going to correspond to these objective relations where you know someone being a chemist has that objective relation and the relationship with their student that is going to be dictated by that field of chemistry. The communication is going to be really the way in which the communication ensues and the power relations are going to speak to the differing ways in which these bodies and people are organized in these spaces and what outcome is meant to come from the organization of the spaces in these ways. So the classroom is really a great example and maybe thinking about this in terms of elementary school is best, where the classroom is organized in such a way whereas everyone is put in view of one another. And if anyone can remember their time in elementary school and high school, shame plays a big role there, where you are meant not to at all deviate from the norm, lest you be shamed by your peers because the way that the classroom is organized, everyone can see everybody else. So it's not totally that the teacher is going to be exerting their influence over the students in order to make them conform to a certain setting. Of course, that's part of it, but also the students are going to be expected to comply with written and unwritten codes about proper conduct, lest they're going to get shamed and bullied. And it'll happen either way. Like, even if they did comply to every single code, racialized students are going to be uh, bullied more than others because of that code that happens to exist there and so on. But it really speaks to the ways in which conduct is going to be mandated and controlled by these tacit codes by virtue of the kinds of power relations that that setting affords and that it it really portends or uh, establishes. So people just end up controlling themselves 
in these settings. They don't want to deviate from the norm because this norm has been so firmly entrenched and established in the setting. Whereas, you know, in a time previous to this, uh, establishing norms might have been a little bit more difficult uh, in, to the extent that they are today because people didn't necessarily have the kinds of communication with one another as they did. So you'd get very different customs from town to town. You get different languages from town to town. You just get totally different people that were not going to be subsumed under generalized categories or normative standards of what it meant to live uh, with, with others, how it meant to act as a proper human in those settings, as a subject, I should say, in those settings. Now, it's important to note that this kind of power really only works if subjects are free, because if they're not free and they're just under some kind of totalitarian rule, we're talking about a different kind of power. We're talking about a kind of sovereign power in those settings where people are just turned into cattle and they have actually no autonomy or control. This kind of power is a little bit I don't want to say it's worse because it, you know who can measure such things, but it is different insofar as it provides the semblance of being free. We are free to think that we have to work, you know, that nine to five job. We are free to think that we have to buy the Mercedes. Uh, we have to work our lives to buy that Mercedes or to buy that home uh, that we don't have the money for. We are free to think that we are supposed to have 2.3 kids. We are free to want these things, of course, but. We have to ask to what extent are they actually imposed upon us, various certain other people, certain unwritten, in some cases written, norms that dictate what we can and really can't think and, and act. So to really engage with power relations is to acknowledge a few different things. The first is that it does not produce homogenous effects. It's going to have different effects on different people, which you know, anyone who really knows Foucault would add a little asterisk here to say that, well, in Discipline and Punish, there's a specific line where he says that, no, in fact, power produces homogenous, uh, there are homogenous effects of power, which oh, a smart person out there might have a good answer for that. I extend that to you if anyone knows. The second thing is that it has to be acknowledged that this power is going to be exerted in different ways against certain different people. So the way that it's going to be exerted might change across, I don't know, might change across race, gender, class. It might change across um, certain, certain social attitudes, certain um, characteristics that people have. Who knows, really? It's really difficult to get down to the nitty gritty of all of them. But just to acknowledge that it will vary and deploy itself in differing ways. It will exert its power for different reasons. It'll have different motivations behind it. It will also have different relationships to different institutions. So power relations will look different in a hospital or in a hospital versus in a prison or in a school versus at home. It's going to assume different forms. It's going to have different intents, different uh, motivations and so on. And these power relations might vary in how effective they actually are at attaining their goals and actually doing what they want to do. Now here at the end of the essay, he offers us another term that in my opinion, he doesn't fully develop. It feels like an add-on that needs a lot more, uh, really needs a lot more, but it's not here. And that is relations of strategy or strategy relations, where he says that between power relations and strategy relations, or the relationship between the two, is that one is the horizon of the other, which is to say that all power relations seek to have their end goal be strategy relations, and all strategy relations seek to have their end goal be power relations, which 
might sound complicated, and it is. Let me explain it. So for him, he suggests that power relations, which are a kind of uh, hierarchization to some extent between different people, differently situated people, want those power relations to end up in such a way that the commanding person, institution, people come out on top and that their way of doing that becomes a strategy to be employed for the future. So that power relation becomes a strategy. Now on the other side of the coin, dealing with strategy relations, there's the hope that in a combat between two different people, like in the case of war or a game or something like that, one person's strategy will result in a final situation in which people are just purely organized where that one person's strategy or people or institution happens to be the hierarchical, hierarchical superior than the other, establishing a power relation in which they are the top dog. Now what this sort of intimates or what this implies is that power is never so neat as to say that it is always forever just going to be working in one direction. There's always room for reversal, always room for antagonism, always room for confrontation, which is really at the core of many of Foucault's texts. He's always leaving room to understand the differing ways that resistance might manifest itself, not necessarily in full frontal politics against uh, certain institutions, certain people, certain parties, but in also subtle ways that individuals respond in ways that make sense to them against uh, their own subordination, against their own subjectification. And yeah, uh, I hope that that cleared up this essay. You got something from that. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. If there's anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Anything I omitted, I'd love to hear about it. And yeah, catch you next time. I'm praying to something that next week I'm going to be starting Mark's Capital Volume 3. Uh, I'm really praying I'll be able to get to it by then. Uh, really pray for me. Please do it. Help me get through that. And yeah, we'll see what I come up with next week. And uh, till then, take care.